Great. Good morning, everyone. My name's Steve Cuss. I actually live not far from here. I live up in Erie, Colorado. I'm a pastor at Discovery Church in Broomfield. Uh, obviously not from around these parts. I was born in Western Australia, which is basically when you get to Australia, it's still a six-hour flight. Uh, and then actually, since I brought it up, when you get to that part, then it's a five-hour drive to where my parents live. So very remote part of the country. Uh, my last name, in case you thought you misheard, and I know there are some children in the room, my last name is, in fact, Cuss. And there's nothing any of us can do about it. So the, the faster you can just come to terms with that, the better. Uh, I'm a pastor, and I also travel around uh, the world helping organizations lower anxiety in the workplace. That's what I do full-time. I'm now part-time at my church, and I go into organizations, and I help them figure out what's going inside me, what's going on around the, the staff. Uh, that's kind of my, my specialty. So uh, here's where I want to dig in today. I think most of us have a gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. If you just have a little think about it, like we believe God loves us, but we don't always feel it. We believe God is with us, but we don't always see it. And the third gap, in my opinion, is we just thought we'd be further along in our faith by now. I, I, you know, some of you maybe are not followers of Christ. Some of you may be very new in following Jesus, but some of you have some laps under your belt like I do. I'm, I was not raised in the church, but I'm now 35 years into um, being a follower of Christ, and you might say to yourself, there's no way, he looks 28, like how can that be? Um, now that I'm in my 50s, which is actually how old I am, my wife has me doing a facial regime. This is new territory for me. So just, I want to set you at ease. It's not a supermodel preaching to you today. I know what you're thinking. I mean, I've been to Sephora and everything. It's like transforming. But, but anyway, I've been a follower of Christ for 35 years, and I just thought I would be further along in my faith by now. I guess another way to say it even as a pastor, I just thought I'd be better at being a Christian than I am. So the three gaps, the love of God, the presence of God, and our progress. Out of those three gaps for me, the love of God has been the toughest one to grapple with. I believe that God loves me generically. Like, it's God's job. There's billions of people on the planet, and God has to love us, and so God loves me. For those of you who are Les Miserables fans, it's like I'm prisoner 24601. I'm just another generic human. But the idea that God loves me specifically, that God has a particular love for me, that God knows my name, that's hard for me to believe. And even as a pastor, that has been, in many ways, the journey of my adult life is trying to believe what is true which is the love of God. It started for me when I was a trauma chaplain. My first job out of college, I went to Bible college, and then I was a trauma chaplain at a level one trauma center. There's level one trauma centers right here in Denver too. Those are the hospitals that all of the worst cases get sent to. That's the hospital with the helicopter. And so we did trauma care and hospice care. And I was 24 years of age, I was really young, I was completely green, I'd, I'd never been in the same room as a dead body before. I'd had no particular experience with grief back then, and I was thrust into this world of death and trauma and cancer. In the year I was a chaplain, I helped around 250 people die, and it was just an absolute onslaught. And if you think about the job of a chaplain, no one is sitting around a hospital room having a great time and saying to themselves, you know what would make this day better? Let's just call the chaplain. I mean, that guy's just a walking party. Let's have him come in. No, people only ever ask for the chaplain where they're in the absolute worst moments of their life. They need help dying. They need help 
being there when their loved one dies. They need help uh, processing the worst news of their life. You know, some of you, you watch uh, hospital dramas like Grey's Anatomy, and listen, let, let's just get this out of the way. If you watch Grey's Anatomy, I don't want to know that about you. All right? Like, listen, I don't know how long that show's been going on, but in my opinion, if I may, when Izzy was resuscitating a deer in the back of a truck, I, I just feel that that's when the, it was probably time to be done with that show. Um, but listen, when you, get, uh, when you watch those medical dramas, sometimes you can get a misunderstanding because there's never chaplains in those medical dramas. I'm a little bitter about it. I don't know why Hollywood can't just add a little bit to the budget and hire a chaplain to be on that show because we're always there. We're always there. Sometimes we're the ones giving the news because the doctors are so busy. And so what would happen over time is people would beg me to beg God for their loved one's healing several times a day. And there's no question, I witnessed miracles and God answered prayer, but if I had to be frank, the percentages were not great. And over time, it was hard for me to be vulnerable and put myself vulnerably in front of God and ask God for a miracle and then somebody to die. And so over time, it got too hard to be let down. So I, I'm not proud of this, but I sort of gave up asking. I, I started to orient my life in a way that if, if I never expect anything out of God, God can't let me down. There's an old 80s Christian punk rocker. I know for some of you that sounds like an oxymoron, Christian punk, but it's true. His name's Steve Taylor. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Steve Taylor. If you like Steve Taylor's music, we're already friends. It's that simple. He had a song in the 1980s, Since I Gave Up Hope, I Feel Much Better. And you really can't experience the love of God if you have Teflon over your heart, guarding what gets in. When I was a chaplain, I was introduced to a theory. This is the theory that I teach now when I travel. And this theory helps you notice anxiety in any room. It teaches you how to walk into any room and notice anxiety being spread around that room. It's a specific form of anxiety called chronic anxiety. You can imagine how helpful it was uh, for an anxious chaplain to learn how to walk into a room and notice who's generating the anxiety and notice especially the anxiety that's being generated in me. This is called chronic anxiety. Now, there's all kinds of anxieties. We are talking a lot about anxiety nowadays in our culture. Have you noticed that? I personally think that's a very good thing. We need to talk more about it. The problem is, what would be helpful for us is not to talk so much about anxiety. It would be more fruitful if we talked about anxieties, which would then lend the question, well, which kind of anxiety are we talking about? Those of you who like football, Anxiety operates the same way. Every team has its unique playbook. Every anxiety has its unique playbook. So for example, trauma is a form of anxiety, but it's generated by a real event that happened to you in your past. And then trauma lands in your body and it lands in your future. Maybe you carry trauma, maybe you have a loved one that carries trauma. Maybe, and I run into this a lot, maybe you work with someone who carries trauma. And you're like, what happened? Like, I thought we were well with each other and, and he has suddenly gone from trusting me to completely viewing me suspiciously. Maybe you're saying, what happened? Like, he blew that meeting up, but he's acting like he was the one that was blown up. It's quite possible that that person is carrying unprocessed trauma. 
Um, you might think about uh, anxiety that requires mental health medication. Obviously, I'm a pastor. I'm not a medical professional. I would just say this about bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, things like this. Here's what I would say as a pastor. If you need mental health medication, you should take mental health medication and thank God for it. It's a gift from God. There can be a stigma in some churches. I'm not saying that's the stigma here, but sometimes we can get confused between our faith and our chemicals. So, so let me just say this. If, if mental health medication would benefit you, please just go look into it and get some help for it because it's not a comment on your faith. It's a comment on your chemicals. Um, I, I wake up happy almost every day, and that's not my fault. You can't blame me for that. I just do. It's like I wake up at first and goal every day. First and goal. I'm just, hey, wow, look at this, the ball. But, but some people with a mental health uh, that need medication, they wake up on the wrong end zone. They wake up with a massive cloud over their brain, and that's not their fault. You can't blame them for that. And what mental health medication does is it helps them just get to the, the halfway mark, maybe, down, and down the playing field. We could talk about grief, which is also based on something real, a real loss in your life. We could talk about acute anxiety. This is just another kind of anxiety. This is the kind of anxiety anytime you're driving on 270 and you have to swerve out of the way to avoid an accident. Acute anxiety is based on something real. It's based on life and death and survival. Uh, we live up near Erie, and when my boys were young, they were out taking a walk with my wife. I was at home. We had some open space around our house, and they, they, I was just at home, I think I was probably working on a sermon, and my boys came busting through the door completely out of breath. And I said, oh, were you guys racing? And they said, no, no, we saw a snake. And I said, oh, that's fantastic. What kind of snake was it? Because I think snakes are really cool. And they said, we don't know. Mom just said, everybody run for your life. My, my wife has a very hostile relationship with snakes. She likes to read Genesis 3 over and over. But... but <laughs> When you run into a potential life and death situation, that's what's clinically known as acute anxiety. So trauma is based on something real. Acute anxiety based on something real. Grief is based on something real. Chronic anxiety, that's my field. Chronic anxiety is based on something false. It's not a true need, it's a false need. Like for example, the need to get it perfect. Uh, Hands up in the room if you're a perfectionist. You can see yourself. Okay, stick them up higher, please. Perfect. You can do better than that. There we go. Okay, very good. Okay, perfectionists. If you're sitting next to a perfectionist, just give them a little gentle, loving flick on the shoulder. Just, and those of you wearing puffy jackets, you won't feel it. The, the kinetic energy of the flick will bounce right back into your fingernail and bruise you because of the puffy Colorado jacket, right? Like perfectionism is a simple, great example of chronic anxiety. Those of you who are perfectionists, you can help the rest of us. You have this false belief that one day, mm, mm, one day you'll get it perfectly right, even though you never have. Perfectionists believe, you, in fact, your expectation for yourself is that you can get it perfectly right the first time you've ever done it, even though you've never done it before. Perfectionists, when we say to you, wow, good job, well, well done, you say to yourself, nope, that's wrong. I'd, I can do it better, not good enough. That's what's known as a false need. That's an example of chronic anxiety. And what's fascinating about chronic anxiety is a few things. Number one, it does not look like worry and fear. 
Some of you, when I got up, you said, oh, the anxiety expert, I can check out today. I'm not an anxious person. Not so fast. First of all, I'd say, if you don't think you're an anxious person, ask somebody who loves you if they think you're an anxious person <laughs> before you go quite quick. Or secondly, it might be that the reason you don't feel anxious is you generate it and other people carry it. Oh, oh. That's oftentimes what I do. I go into the workplace and oftentimes it's like a highly driven entrepreneurial CEO type guy. I'm not an anxious person. I'm like, no, I get why. Look at all these exhausted people who are walking on eggshells around you. They don't know how to tell you the truth because when they tell you the truth, you punish them. Look at your staff turnover rate. No, you're not anxious. You're generating it. They're carrying it. I can be a real fun guy when I show up in the workplace. But here's the thing about chronic anxiety. It does not look like worry and fear. It looks like reactivity. That's what chronic anxiety looks like. So you could ask yourself a question, what kinds of situations make me reactive? And what is making you reactive is you're not getting what you believe you need in any given moment to be okay. Sometimes when we get reactive, we get really big, like a mama bear, like Jack Nicholson standing on the wall of a few good men. Not on my watch, no one crosses. Like, and sometimes we get smaller when we're reactive, like a turtle in its shell. So for example, in your staff meetings, if those of you who work in the workplace, you can look around the room and say, who's getting bigger and who's getting smaller? Who always uses the most words? Who never speaks up unless they're spoken to? I was flying home from a speaking engagement and I was coming from O'Hare Airport, the Chicago O'Hare Airport. I don't know if you're familiar with that airport, but it's actually where Satan lives. Uh, uh, I, <laughs> I'm a pastor, I, I know these things, I know where Satan lives, it's O'Hare Airport. I was flying home from O'Hare to here in Denver and we get to the gate and the seatbelt sign goes off and the family behind me jumped the line up the aisle. Now, one of the simplest ways to discover your false needs is when someone violates a core value of yours. And one of my core values is courtesy. Everyone waits their turn. Everyone stands in line. And so the teenage girl, she bolted out the aisle. My peripheral vision, I wasn't ready. But the rest of the family, I could see them coming. And I got bigger. I'm not proud of this, by the way. This isn't one of those stories where I'm the hero of the story. I stuck my arm in the aisle and blocked the family from getting off the plane. Like I'm freaking Gandalf. Like I'm like, none shall part. Like what is going on in that moment? My chronic anxiety became an unreliable narrator in my life. And it said, Steve, you must be judge, jury, and executioner. They have violated your courtesy, and you must step in. So I stuck my arm out, I looked behind me, and I said, look, we're all trying to get off the plane. Let's wait our turn. I thought I was being very helpful. I was dripping with condescension. I mean, as I look back on it, mortifying. The mother, the, the lady invites me to have a sexual relationship with my mother that I would never have, like it was terrible. She called me names. She used some of the worst language you can imagine. And then I, I know you're looking at my tricep right now. You're like, he must be magnificent. No, they just busted right through my arm. I was so angry. I was so angry. What was going on there? What happens when you're filled with chronic anxiety is you're no longer in touch with reality. Chronic anxiety actually puts you in a false reality. And you can't see what the situation requires anymore. And you can't see God's presence anymore. Have you ever noticed that when you're really reactive, either you're bigger or you're smaller than human sized, you're no longer noticing God. You're just kind of wrapped up in yourself. 
that's the power of chronic anxiety. That's why as a pastor, I, I spend my time helping people notice chronic anxiety because I believe if you can notice it and name it, then you can actually have a profound encounter with God and get back to reality because God exists in concrete reality. Jesus said, you can know the truth and truth can set you free. And I don't believe Jesus was saying that just as kind of a heaven and hell salvation thing. I think Jesus is saying this can be your daily reality. You can bump into the love of God more often if you pay attention to your false needs because when you have false needs, you're depending on yourself. But when you die to your false needs, you can relax into the presence of God. So let's have a little fun, shall we? Let's take a look at the big five common false needs of every human. Control, perfection, always knowing the answer, always being there for people and people's approval. Control, perfection, always knowing the answer, always being there for people and people's approval. Where are you on the big five? Which of these really resonate with you? Now, there's a few of you, you're like, I don't know what the arise. Uh, Australians, we have a broader vocabulary than Americans. I've learned this over time as I preach. So I don't know what the arise acceptable vocabulary is, but some of you right now are looking at the big five. You're saying, oh crap, I'm all five. (laughs) If that's you, there's nothing wrong with you. Like it's okay. What you're going to start doing is figure out which one drives the others. Which one do I need the most? So control. You know, those of you who are control freaks, like you have a meeting, you're walking into the meeting, and you've already figured out the five possible scenarios that someone might bring up, and then Jim brings up scenario number six, and you're defensive or combative to Jim. Not because he raised anything bad, but he caught you off guard. You're not in control. Or maybe you're running a meeting, and Jim is just going on and on, and he's got no point, and there's no end in sight, and you're getting so angry because you feel responsible for everybody's experience. Even though Jim is the bore, you are carrying the responsibility. That's control. The best thing for control freaks is to go volunteer with toddlers. Toddlers are a gift to control freaks. Uh, Perfection, we've already picked on you enough. Those of you who are perfectionists, one of you, if you want to uh, enjoy yourself, go compliment a perfectionist and watch them squirm. Um, Always knowing the answer, that's one of mine. If I'm in a meeting and Jimmy asks Renee the question and I know the answer, I have to literally physically stop myself from interrupting and answering. What is that? I I need you to know that I know. And it's very hard for me to say I don't know because I feel really stupid. And when I feel really stupid, I feel really exposed. So the internet for a guy like me is a drug because I can know. I can Google it. In fact, how many times have my kids come up and asked me something and they don't know and I don't know and rather than doing what a good dad would do, saying, hey, I bet you can figure that out, I will Google it in front of them. What's that? What is that? That's my need to know. Always being there for people, that's one of mine as well. Somebody somewhere is suffering, I must bake lasagna. I just have to start baking lasagna. Like, if you are suffering, I must rush in and help. I forget that God has a whole army of compassionate servants. In the moment, I believe I must help. It's very difficult for me, maybe this is you too, to discern between someone's need and my incessant need to be needed. 
Oh my goodness. My, my wife has a hostile relationship with her technology. She does not get along with her phone and her computer. I believe it's because she never deletes an email. She has never met an email she has felt she needs to delete. So her inbox, and I'm not exaggerating, has 30,000 unread emails. I, I wish I was making this up. This is a true story. In fact, I probably understated it. Because, you know, she went to Old Navy 12 years ago and they send her an email every day, <laughs> times the 300 stores over 12 years. And so over time, her phone breaks under the weight of the ones and the zeros. It's just the poor phone is like, I can't carry the weight. And the phone stops working and then my wife will get frustrated. Now, here's what is reality. She's frustrated at herself. Oh, my phone's not working because she's saying to yourself, if you just develop some systems in your life, your life would, and she's, but my brain moves me into that unreliable narrator and my brain says, Steve, she wants you to rescue her. Chronic anxiety puts you in a false reality. It's hard to tell between my chronic need and her need in the moment. Um, now, I, I don't need to finish that story. Those of you who are married, I take the phone out of a hand to save the day. I put underwear over my pants like I'm Superman. And I think that I'm getting a pat on the head and she's grumpy at me like I don't understand. That's because my chronic anxiety has put me in a false reality. Every one of us in this room, we have between 30 and 50 triggers that generate chronic anxiety. The final one being approval. That's me too. That's me too. I need that pat on the head. Do you like me? Are we okay with each other? Those of us who struggle with approval, we have a conversation, maybe it didn't quite go the way we wanted, and then the person leaves and our brain leaves with them. Our brain is now in their brain. What is she thinking? What is she thinking of me? This is me in high school, a tortured existence, trying to talk to girls. What's crazy is all of us have these big five, and what they do is they show up and they take over our life. Chronic anxiety has some fascinating traits. It's the only kind of anxiety that's contagious. No other anxiety is contagious. Chronic anxiety is. Maybe you're saying to yourself, wait a minute. I was with a grieving person, because grief is a form of anxiety. I was with a grieving person, and I came away anxious. I think grief is contagious. No, what happened was you had this false need to say something or do something to make it better, and you didn't know what to say and you didn't know what to do, and so you got chronic anxiety. See, what I've discovered as a pastor, and this has been really freeing for me, is I always presume that my belief in Jesus was my deepest, most core belief, but it's not. I have deeper, more core beliefs than my belief in Jesus. I don't say that out of shame or guilt, it just is reality. What I've come to discover is my belief in Jesus is my most precious belief. It is absolutely my number one most precious belief. But when I'm tired or when I'm not aware, these deep core beliefs come rising up out of the surface and they block. They block my capacity to engage God because I'm living out of those beliefs rather than living out of my belief in Christ. Again, I don't say that out of guilt or shame. I just think that's what it means to be human. I think the problem is not that we believe the gospel but that there are so many Gospels we believe. Uh, here's a Gospel, for example, that I believed as a teenager. If I could get good grades and get on the sporting team and talk to girls and make them laugh, then I could be accepted. That's a form of a Gospel, if you think about it. This is what I must do. This is the path I must walk. If I walk this path, I get this promise. 
and then there's some kind of payment involved. In fact, if you think about gospels, like most of us, especially in the church, when we think about gospel, we think, oh, that's a church word, right? Gospel is a church word. But actually, what's fascinating in the New Testament, before gospel was a church word, it was a Roman Empire word. So Caesar Augustus, many of you remember him from high school history, Caesar Augustus had a gospel, and they called it a gospel, the good news of Caesar Augustus. It was called the peace of Rome. And if you did certain things, maybe you would get the peace of Rome. So, for example, Caesar Augustus had this poet named Virgil who would follow him around everywhere. You can Google this guy. You can just go home and Google Caesar Augustus Virgil, and you'll discover that Virgil wrote poetry for Caesar Augustus, and he would go around and proclaim this poetry everywhere Caesar went. Not very much unlike Monty Python and the Holy Grail, actually, with... Patsy and Brave Sir Robin, like Patsy's walking around singing songs about Brave Sir Robin. That's what Virgil did for Caesar Augustus. And Virgil wrote a poem, this might ring off some alarm bells for some of you, where Virgil said, the day of Augustus's birth is a day of glad tidings and great joy for all mankind. For through the birth of Caesar comes peace for everybody. Does that sound like Christmas to you? And that's why Luke and Paul and other New Testament writers reached into the Roman Empire and stole some of their vocabulary. Do you want to know what Caesar Augustus's nickname was in the first century? Son of God. That's what he was called. He was the son of God because his dad Julius was a god, Julius Caesar, and Julius died and Augustus took the throne and he became the son of God. Do you know what the most common profession of faith was in the Roman Empire? Caesar is Lord. Now, If you wanted the Roman gospel, here's what you do. You let the Roman Empire come and conquer your village and kill a bunch of your men. You let them enslave a lot more of your men and then drag them through the city in a celebration, triumphal procession. And then you let them come in and bring a puppet king like Herod or a prefect like Pontius Pilate where they rule with an iron fist and a bunch of centurions. And then you let them tax you to the absolute hilt tax you as much as they can. And if you can't pay your taxes, that's no problem. They will send Matthew and centurions to your house to steal your children and to enslave your children for slave labor. And if you let them do that, you will get the peace of Rome. Pretty brutal, isn't it? It turns out every gospel except one, you pay and the God benefits. So in the Roman Empire... You did all the paying, Caesar got all the benefit. In my teenage gospel, I was paying, 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 and I never got the benefit. Even in other religions today, you can study every religion, even religions that have really good teaching in them, like Islam, for example, has really good teaching in it. You can't argue that the five pillars of Islam is actually a pretty good way to be a human being, but still, but still, the human pays, Allah gets the benefit. So, Every gospel has a path, a promise, and a payment. Now, the reason we took this weird track leap from anxiety to the Roman Empire is chronic anxiety has a gospel, and it has these three elements. It is putting you on a path, it is dangling a promise out of reach, and it's making you pay. Perfectionists, you guys can go home and help the rest of us understand what path does perfection have you on? 
What promise is it dangling out of reach? And in what ways are you paying? What's fascinating to me about the gospel of Jesus is it's the only gospel where the God, the God pays for the sake of the human rather than the other way around. That's what makes it amazing. That's what we call grace. The idea that God does the paying and we get the benefiting. That's how we can exchange our chronic anxiety for the gospel of Jesus and we can relax into being human-sized followers of Jesus. One of the biggest challenges we have in the church is we expect ourselves to be superhuman. You think about the big five again, the, the need to be in control, the need to do it perfectly, right? The need to have the answer, the need to be there for others, the need for approval. Riddle me this. Who in the universe do you know that has all five of those traits? Who is in control? Who is perfect? They call it omniscient. Who knows everything there is to know? Who is omnipresent? Who is there for everybody? And who gives us our approval through his work on the cross so that we don't have to strive for it from another person anymore? When we understand what God has done for us and what God has paid, we can relax into being exactly human-sized. One of the pieces of homework for you is you can go home and just draw a simple column. What are these big five? Control, for example. How does God manifest that? What does God do? And what's the human equivalent? What's the human-sized equivalent to perfection? What's the human-sized equivalent to knowing the answer? And learn how to relax into the grace of God. Arise Church is in this series called Brainwash. We're trying to understand the way we think and how we can experience some freedom in our thinking. And so I just want to leave us with one simple tool, and that is noticing our inner critic. Our inner critic. Because your inner critic has a gospel, and it's pretty profound. You know you're in a critic. That's the voice that speaks up whenever you let yourself down. Uh, that voice that condemns you when you didn't do it the way you should have done it. Now, what, what message does your inner critic send? And then how would you describe it to someone? So my inner critic. Uh, at the earliest level, my inner critic will say, oh, Steve, you should know better by now. And it says it just like that, very condescending. You should know better by now. But then, if I really let my inner critic have its way, it'll start calling me stupid. Steve, you're stupid and everyone knows you're stupid. And then if I really dig into my inner critic, it'll say, you're not worth loving. You're not a human being that is worth anyone loving. That's pretty dark. That's pretty dark. If you listen to the message of my inner critic, how would you describe that? Like you might say, oh man, that's really harsh. Or you might say, oh, that's really condemning. And so what you can do this week is write down your inner critic. The problem with the inner critic is we let it reign free in our brain. But if you write it down or have the courage to say it to someone, you tame it. We name things so we can tame things. Or what the authors of Scripture call confession. So write it down and then describe it or have your friend describe it to you. It's quite arresting to hear the gospel that you are believing when you're listening to your inner critic. So here is the gospel of Jesus just in comparison to your inner critic. 1 John 3, 19 and 20. 
This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and God knows everything. This is how we know that we belong to the truth. Remember how I said chronic anxiety is always putting us in a false reality. Jesus is trying to help us orient to truth. This is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. You know, have you ever been with somebody where you feel fully vulnerable and fully exposed? It's very scary. What your inner critic is doing clinically is it's trying to protect you from vulnerability by condemning you before someone else can condemn you. It's kind of preempting the damage. It, it means well. The inner critic means well, but it's doing so much damage in our life because it's very hard to experience the love of God when we're giving so much power to the voice in our head. Now... I'm an Australian citizen. I know most of you are not. And you much prefer to throw perfectly good tea into a harbour. Like, I get it, I get it. (laughs) You see someone wearing a red coat, you want to shoot him, I understand. But I'm an Aussie, and that means that King Charles, the King of England, is my sovereign king. And I know that sounds funny to you, but I'm a subject to the monarch of England. It used to be Queen Elizabeth, now it's King Charles. And when you are summoned to Buckingham Palace, there's rules. The monarch gets the first word. You don't get to just run your stupid mouth. You have to wait, and you wait silently, and then he speaks, or Queen Elizabeth speaks. And then secondly, you never correct the monarch. Can you imagine mansplaining to the queen? You'd never do that. (laughs) And then the sovereign gets the final word, the last word. And of course, King Jesus is our sovereign king, And I think we've just gotten way too comfortable talking back. I think the problem is God speaks, but our inner critic gets the final word. Like when I really started doing this deep work in my own life, I noticed that it was the inner critic living in the corner office of my brain. I was giving the inner critic the best real estate of my brain. So what I've learned to do, and this is very difficult for me, and this is how I've learned to be flooded with the love of God, is I take what my inner critic says and I write it out and then I take what God says and I write it out and I try to see who's telling the truth. Who has better news? Which one makes me pay? Which one sets me free? Have you noticed that your chronic anxiety never gives you the thing it promises to give you? My chronic anxiety says to me, you can worry your way to peace. I've never successfully done it. It's like drinking salt water. Your chronic anxiety says, if you just try harder, you will get perfection. You have never once gotten perfection. Rather than that, relax into being human-sized. Let God be perfect. Did you know in Genesis 3, the very first temptation that the accuser gave to Adam and Eve was, you can be like God. And any time we are trying to be more than we were designed to be, we get chronically anxious. So what I do is I compare what God says to what I say. When I say, look, I'm not worth loving, and Jesus says, God knows the very number of hairs on your head, and I say to God, well, thank God that's getting easier for you over time. (laughs) But who's telling the truth? Which one of us is telling the truth? When when in the book of Psalms, God says, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. I, I made you with a particular love, and I say, I'm not worth your time, God. Who's telling the truth? Where's the better news? I'd like to close with this, and this is kind of how we're going to use our time of prayer. So I'm going to invite the band and the team to come up. This is that same passage in 1 John in the message version. This is the only way we'll know that we're living truly 
living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts, and God knows more about us than we do ourselves. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it convicts us. When our inner critic speaks to us, it condemns us. When the Holy Spirit speaks to us, it leads us on a path to freedom. It gives us something to do, repent and repair and restore. When our inner critic speaks to us, it's like baby and dirty dancing. It just wants to keep us in a corner. It never lets us break free. So I'm just going to invite us for 30 seconds. We're going to have a prayer on the screen. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? What would my life look like if I was as kind to myself as God is, if I was as forgiving of myself as God is. This is how we live into the truth. And so just for 30 seconds, just a time of quiet, what's the blank for you? And then let's, let's worship. you are so good to us better than we deserve better than we can comprehend and many of us come into this room this morning or hear these words and we're burdened down by the world our hearts are heavy our minds are full we're tired we're striving we've been pushing and trying and falling short again and again And so, God, whatever is on our hearts this morning, we lay at your feet. We lay at your feet and we receive what you have for us. We receive your love. We receive your grace. We receive your mercy. We receive your plan, your purpose, your identity, your mission, God, and your hope, your peace that passes all understanding. God, and if there's somebody listening to these words this morning who's maybe for the first time realizing that they don't have to live the life that they've been living, that there's something better, something better than just striving after the next thing, settling for control and anxiety. God, and they're ready to accept that free gift of salvation, an invitation to a better life, to the fullest life. The Holy Spirit is working right now, God, in this room. That as we read these words together, as we declare what you have done for us, dying death in our place and conquering sin, death, our anxiety and the devil, that we would accept that free gift of salvation for the first time. That we would read these words together as someone reads them together for the first time. 
Dear God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Save me. Forgive me. In faith I declare, Jesus is Lord. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to follow you and to listen to your voice. There's somebody in this room or listening to my voice who said those words for the first time. If your heart is now set free from the bondage of the world, that is awesome. We wanna celebrate with you. We're so excited on this new journey of hope and of purpose. You don't have to strive anymore. You just have to rest in who God says you are. And so if that's you this morning, we wanna celebrate with you. So on the count of three, if you would raise your hand boldly so we can celebrate with you. Ready? One, two, three. God, we thank you for the work that you're doing in this place this morning, that it wouldn't just stay in this room, but we would be set free on mission, transformed to help others do the same. God, I thank you for Steve's words this morning, those powerful words, acknowledging where we're at, that we don't have to live the life we've been living anymore, that we would accept the life that you have for us and be boldly sent to call others to do the same. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.